Chapter One, Part Two, of Industrial Biography, Ironworkers and Toolmakers by Samuel Smiles. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Clive Catterall. Iron and Civilization, Part Two. The early history of iron in Britain is necessarily very obscure. When the Romans invaded the country, the metal seems to have been already known to the tribes along the coast. The natives had probably smelted it themselves in their rude bloomeries, or obtained it from the Phoenicians in small quantities in exchange for skins and food or tin. We must, however, regard the stories told of the ancient British chariots, armed with swords or scythes, as altogether apocryphal. The existence of iron in sufficient quantity to be used in such a purpose is incompatible with contemporary facts, and unsupported by a single vestige remaining in our time. The country was then mostly forest, and the roads did not as yet exist upon which chariots could be used, whilst iron was too scarce to be mounted as scythes upon chariots when the warriors themselves wanted it for swords. The orator Cicero, in a letter to Trebatius, then serving with the army in Britain, sarcastically advised him to capture and convey one of these vehicles to Italy for exhibition. But we do not hear that any specimen of the British war chariot was ever seen in Rome. It is only in the tumuli along the coast, or in those of the Romano-British period, that iron implements are ever found, whilst in the ancient burying places of the interior of the country they are altogether wanting. Herodian says of the British pursued by Severus through the fens and marshes of the east coast, that they wore iron hoops round their middles and their necks, esteeming them as ornaments and tokens of riches, in like manner as other barbarous peoples then esteemed ornaments of silver and gold. Their only money, according to Caesar, consisted of pieces of brass or iron reduced to a certain standard weight. It is particularly important to observe, says M. Warsai, that all the antiquities which have hitherto been found in the large burying places of the Iron Period, in Switzerland, Bavaria, Baden, France, England, and the North, exhibit traces, more or less, of Roman influence. The Romans themselves used weapons of bronze when they could not obtain iron in sufficient quantity, and many of the Roman weapons dug out of the ancient tumuli are of that metal. They possessed the art of tempering and hardening bronze to such a degree as to enable them to manufacture swords of it of a pretty good edge, and in those countries where they penetrated, their bronze implements gradually supplanted those which had been previously fashioned of stone. Great quantities of bronze tools have been found in different parts of England, sometimes in heaps, as if they had been thrown away in basketfuls as things of little value. It has been conjectured that when the Romans came into Britain, they found the inhabitants, especially those to the northward, in very nearly the same state as Captain Cook and other voyagers found the inhabitants of the South Sea Islands, that the Britons parted with their food and valuables for tools of inferior metal made in imitation of their stone ones, but finding themselves cheated by the Romans, as the natives of Otaheite had been cheated by Europeans. The Britons relinquished the bad tools when they became acquainted with articles made of better metal. 
The Roman colonists were the first makers of iron in Britain on any large scale. They availed themselves of the mineral riches of the country wherever they went. Every year brings their extraordinary industrial activity more clearly to light. They not only occupied the best sites for trade, intersected the land with a complete system of well-constructed roads, studied our hills and valleys with towns, villages and pleasure-houses, and availed themselves of our medicinal springs for purposes of baths to an extent not even exceeded at this day. But they explored our mines and quarries, and carried on the smelting and manufacture of metals in nearly all parts of the island. The heaps of mining refuse left by them in the valleys and along the hillsides of North Derbyshire are still spoken of by the country people as old man, or the old man's work. Year by year, from Dartmoor to the Moray Firth, the plough turns up fresh traces of their indefatigable industry and enterprise, in pigs of lead, implements of iron and bronze, vessels of pottery, coins and sculpture. And it is a remarkable circumstance that in several districts, where the existence of extensive iron beds had not been dreamt of until the last twenty years, as in Northamptonshire and North Yorkshire, the remains of ancient workings recently discovered show that the Roman colonists were fully acquainted with them. But the principal iron mines worked by that people were those which were most conveniently situated for the purposes of exportation, more especially in the southern counties and on the border of Wales. The extensive cinder heaps found in the forest of Dean, which formed the readiest resource of the modern iron smelter when improved processes enabled him to reduce them, show that their principal iron manufactures were carried on in that quarter. It is indeed a matter of history that about seventeen hundred years since, A.D. 120, the Romans had forges in the west of England, both in the forest of Dean and in South Wales, and that they sent the metal from thence to Bristol, where it was forged and made into weapons for the use of the troops. Along the banks of the Wye, the ground is in many places a continuous bed of iron cinders, in which numerous remains have been found, furnishing unmistakable proofs of the Roman furnaces. At the same time, the iron ores of Sussex were extensively worked, as appears from the cinder heaps found at Maresfield, and several places in that county intermixed with Roman pottery, coins, and other remains. In a bed of scoriae several acres in extent, at Old Land Farm in Maresfield, the Reverend Mr. Turner found the remains of Roman pottery so numerous that scarcely a barrowload of cinders was removed that did not contain several fragments, together with coins of the reigns of Nero, Vespasian, and Diocletian. In the turbulent infancy of nations, it is to be expected that we should hear more of the smith or worker in iron in connection with war than with more peaceful pursuits. Although he was a nail-maker and a horseshoer, made axes, chisels, saws, and hammers for the artificer, spades and hoes for the farmer, bolts and fastenings for the lord's castle-gate and chains for his drawbridge, it was principally because of his skill in armour-work that he was esteemed. He made and mended the weapons used in the chase and in war, the gavelocks, bills, and battle-axes. He tipped the bowman's arrows, and furnished the spearheads for the men-at-arms. But, above all, he forged the mail-coats and cuirasses of the chiefs, and welded their swords, on the temper and quality of which life, honour, and victory in battle depended. 
hence the great estimation in which the smith was held in the anglo-saxon times his person was protected by a double penalty he was treated as an officer of the highest rank and awarded the first place in precedency after him ranked the maker of mead and then the physician in the royal court of wales he sat in the great hall with the king and queen next to the domestic chaplain and even at that early day there seems to have been a hot spark in the smith's throat which needed much quenching for he was entitled to a draught of every kind of liquor that was brought into the hall the smith was thus a mighty man the saxon chronicle describes the valiant knight himself as a mighty war-smith but the smith was greatest of all in his forging of swords and the bards were wont to sing the praises of the knight's good sword and of the smith who made it as well as of the knight himself who wielded it in battle the most extraordinary powers were attributed to the weapon of steel when first invented its sharpness seemed so marvellous when compared with one of bronze that with the vulgar nothing but magic could account for it traditions enshrined in fairy tales still survive in most countries illustrative of its magical properties the weapon of bronze was dull but that of steel was bright the white sword of light one touch of which broke spells liberated enchanted princesses and froze giants marrow king arthur's magic sword excalibur was regarded as almost heroic in the romance of chivalry so were the swords galatin of sir gawain and joyeuse of charlemagne both of which were reputed to be the work of wayland the smith about whose name clusters so much traditional glory as an ancient worker in metals the heroes of the northmen in like manner wielded magic swords olave the norwegian possessed the sword macabuin forged by the dark smith of drontheim whose feats are recorded in the tales of the skulds and so in like manner traditions of the supernatural power of the blacksmith are found existing to this day all over the scottish highlands when william the norman invaded britain he was well supplied with smiths his followers were clad in armour of steel and furnished with the best weapons of the time indeed their superiority in this respect is supposed to have been the principal cause of william's victory over harold for the men of both armies were equal in point of bravery the normans had not only smiths to attend to the arms of the knights but farriers to shoe their horses henry de fimarius or ferres prefectus fabrorum was one of the principal officers entrusted with the supervision of the conqueror's farriery department and long after the earldom was founded his descendants continued to bear on their coat of arms the six horseshoes indicative of their origin william also gave the town of northampton with the hundred of fackley as a fief to simon st liz in consideration of his providing shoes for his horses but though the practice of horseshoeing is said to have been introduced to the country at the time of the conquest it is probably of an earlier date as according to dugdale an old saxon tenant in the capity of welbeck in nottinghamshire named gamelbeer held two carricates of land by the service of shoeing the king's palfrey on all four feet with the king's nails as oft as the king should lie at the neighbouring manor of mansfield although we hear of the smith mostly in connection with the fabrication of instruments of war in the middle ages 
his importance was no less recognised in the ordinary affairs of rural and industrial life. He was, as it were, the rivet that held society together. Nothing could be done without him. Wherever tools or implements were wanted for building, for trade, or for husbandry, his skill was called into requisition. In remote places he was often the sole mechanic of his district. And besides being a tool-maker, a farrier, and agricultural implement-maker, he doctored cattle, drew teeth, practised phlebotomy, and sometimes officiated as parish clerk and general newsmonger. For the smithy was the very eye and tongue of the village. Hence Shakespeare's picture of the smith in King John. I saw a smith stand with his hammer thus, whilst his iron did on the anvil cool, with open mouth swallowing the tailor's news. The smith's tools were of many sorts, but the chief were his hammer, pincers, chisels, tongs, and anvil. It is astonishing what a variety of articles he turned out of his smithy by the help of these rude implements. In the tooling, chasing, and consummate knowledge of the capabilities of iron, he greatly surpassed the modern workman. For the medieval blacksmith was an artist as well as a workman. The numerous exquisite specimens of his handicraft, which exist in our old gateways, church doors, altar railings, and ornamented dogs and andirons, still serve as types for continual reproduction. He was, indeed, the most cunning workman of his time. But besides all this, he was an engineer. If a road had to be made, or a stream embanked, or a trench dug, he was invariably called upon to provide the tools, and often to direct the work. He was also the military engineer of his day, and as late as the reign of Edward III we find the king repeatedly sending for the smiths from the forest of Dean to act as engineers for the royal army at the siege of Berwick. The smith, being thus the earliest and most important of mechanics, it will readily be understood how, at the time when surnames were adopted, his name should have been so common in all European countries. From whence came Smith, or be he knight or squire, but from the smith that forgeth in the fire? Hence the multitudinous family of smiths in England, in some cases vainly disguised under the smythe or the smythe, in Germany the Schmitz, in Italy the Fabri or Fabrici or Fabroni, in France the Lefebvres or Lefebvres, in Scotland the Gows, Gowans or Cowans. We have also among us the Brownsmiths or makers of brown bills, the Naysmiths or Nailsmiths, the Arrowsmiths or makers of arrowheads, the Spearsmiths or spearmakers, the Shoesmiths or horseshoers, the Goldsmiths or workers in gold, and many more. The smith proper was, however, the worker in iron, the maker of iron tools, implements, and arms. Hence this name exceeds in number that of all the others combined. In the course of time the smiths of a particular district began to distinguish themselves for their excellence in particular branches of ironwork. From being merely the retainer of some lordly or religious establishment, the smith worked to supply the general demand, and gradually became a manufacturer. Thus the maker of swords, tools, bits and nails congregated at Birmingham, the makers of knives and arrowheads at Sheffield. Chaucer speaks of the miller of Trumpington as provided with a Sheffield whittle, 
a Sheffield twittle bear he in his hose. The common English arrowheads manufactured at Sheffield were long celebrated for their excellent temper, as Sheffield iron and steel plates are now. The Battle of Hamilton, fought in Scotland in 1402, was won mainly through their excellence. The historian records that they penetrated the armour of the Earl of Douglas, which had been three years in making, and they were so sharp and strong that no armour could repel them. The same arrowheads were found equally efficient against the French armour of the fields of Cressy and Agincourt. Although Scotland is now one of the principal sources from which our supplies of iron are drawn, it was in ancient times greatly distressed for want of the metal. The people were, as yet, too little skilled to be able to turn their great mineral wealth to account. Even in the time of Wallace they had scarcely emerged from the stone period, and were under the necessity of resisting their iron-armed English adversaries by means of rude weapons of that material. To supply themselves with swords and spearheads they imported steel from Flanders, and the rest they obtained by marauding incursions into England. The district of Furness in Lancashire, then as now an iron-producing district, was frequently ravaged with that object, and on such occasions the Scotch seized and carried off all the manufactured iron they could find, preferring it, though so heavy, to every other kind of plunder. About the same period, however, iron must have been regarded as almost a precious metal, even in England itself, for we find that in Edward III's reign the pots, spits, and frying-pans of the royal kitchen were classified among His Majesty's jewels. The same famine of iron prevailed to a still greater extent in the highlands, where it was even more valued, as the clans lived chiefly by hunting and were in an almost constant state of feud. Hence the smith was a man of indispensable importance among the highlanders, and the possession of a skilled armourer was greatly valued by the chiefs. The story is told of some delinquency having been committed by a highland smith, on whom justice must be done. But as the chief could not dispense with the smith, he generously offered to hang two weavers in his stead. At length a great armourer arose in the highlands, who was able to forge armour that would resist the best Sheffield arrowheads, and to make swords that would vie with the best weapons of Toledo and Milan. This was the famous Andrea de Ferrara, whose swords still maintain their ancient reputation. This workman is supposed to have learned his art in the Italian city after which he was called, and returned to practice it in secrecy among the highland hills. Before him no man in Great Britain is said to have known how to temper a sword in such a way as to bend so that the point should touch the hilt and spring back uninjured. The swords of Andrea de Ferrara did this, and were accordingly in great request, for it was of every importance to the warrior that his weapon should be strong and sharp without being unwieldy, and that it should not be liable to snap in the act of combat. This celebrated smith, whose personal identity has become merged in the Andrea de Ferrara swords of his manufacture, pursued his craft in the highlands, where he employed a number of skilled workmen in forging weapons devoting his own time principally to giving them the required temper. He is said to have worked in a dark cellar, the better to enable him to perceive the effect of the heat upon the metal, and to watch the nicety of the operation of tempering, as well as, possibly, 
to serve as a screen to his secret method of working. Long after Andrea de Ferrara's time, the Scotch swords were famous for their temper. Judge Marshal Fatten, who accompanied the Protector's expedition into Scotland in 1547, observing that, The Scots came with swords all broad and thin, of exceeding good temper, and universally so made to slice that I never saw none so good, so I think it hard to devise a better. The quality of the steel used for weapons of war was indeed of no less importance for the effectual defence of a country then than it is now. The courage of the attacking and defending forces being equal, the victory would necessarily rest with the party in possession of the best weapons. England herself has on more than one occasion been supposed to be in serious peril because of the decay of her iron manufactures. Before the Spanish Armada, the production of iron had been greatly discouraged because of the destruction of timber in the smelting of the ore, the art of reducing it with pit-coal not having been yet invented, and we were consequently mainly dependent upon foreign countries for our supplies of the material out of which arms were made. The best iron came from Spain itself, then the most powerful nation in Europe, and as celebrated for the excellence of its weapons as for the discipline and valour of its troops. The Spaniards prided themselves upon the superiority of their iron, and regarded its scarcity in England as an important element in their calculations of the conquest of the country by their famous armada. I have heard, says Harrison, that when one of the greatest peers of Spain espied our nakedness in this behalf, and did solemnly utter in no obscure place that it would be an easy matter in short time to conquer England because it wanted armour, his words were not so rashly uttered as politely noted. The vigour of Queen Elizabeth promptly supplied a remedy by the large importations of iron which she caused to be made, principally from Sweden as well as by the increased activity of the forges in Sussex and the Forest of Dean. Whereby, adds Harrison, England obtained rest, that otherwise might have been sure of sharp and cruel wars. Thus a Spanish word uttered by one man at one time, overthrew, or at the leastwise hindered, sundry privy practices of many at another nor has the subject which occupied the earnest attention of politicians in Queen Elizabeth's time ceased to be of interest. For, after the lapse of nearly three hundred years, we find the smith and the iron manufacturer still uppermost in public discussions. It has of late years been felt that our much-prized hearts of oak are no more able to stand against the prows of mail which are supposed to threaten them, than the sticks and stones of the ancient tribes were able to resist the men armed with weapons of bronze or steel. What Solon said to Croesus when the latter was displaying his great treasures of gold still holds true. If another comes that hath better iron than you, he will be master of all that gold. So when an alchemist waited upon the Duke of Brunswick during the Seven Years' War and offered to communicate the secret of converting iron into gold, the Duke replied, By no means. I want all the iron I can find to resist my enemies. As for gold, I get it from England. Thus the strength and wealth of nations depends upon coal and iron, not forgetting men, far more than upon gold. Thanks to our Armstrongs and Wentworths, our Browns and our Smiths, the iron defences of England, manned by our soldiers and our sailors, 
furnish the assurance of continued security for our gold and our wealth, and, what is infinitely more precious, for our industry and our liberty. End of chapter 1